Unpublished podcast where we talk about everything from gaps in the literature to gaps in society. Thank you for joining us for another episode. This is Jaslyn. And this is Darren. Thanks for tuning in for another week. As always, you know, our follower count is going up little by little. So, you know, last time we celebrated being on six continents. I'm trying to get seven. Antarctica, where you at? But, <laughs> um, but in the meantime, in between time, you know, we got to do our, our check in and check out. You see, I'm, I'm spitting bars, Jasmine. <laughs> bars. <laughs> but um, how are you doing? How's stuff going? It's a beautiful day, at least here. It is a beautiful day. I was sitting there looking out the window and I'm probably mm. going to pop outside when we're, we're done recording today. But yeah, I'm doing well. Um, just kind of working on the transition into my fourth year and the move. So just just looking forward to it all true about to be in that big apple <laughs> do you know in spanish like manzana like which means apple in english means like block so like in madrid when you're like how many blocks do you need to go it's like how many apples how many apples oh that's yeah <laughs> and it's like, how wow, many apples language. i didn't know that that's interesting <laughs> Well, how are you doing? I'm good. As you can see, I am joyous. I was listening to Eckhart Tolle and Russell. Russell um, what's that man's name? He, he dated Katy, Katy Perry. Yeah, Russell Brand. They had like a podcast today. So I was listening to them to talk um, just about consciousness and the mind um, okay, okay. and the self and the ego. So lots of reflections, lots of good energy. Uh, yeah, I kind of want to go outside too, soak in some rain. So I've been pretty good. No really complaints. <laughs> I guess this is a good time to do a like what we've been listening to oh, sort yeah. of segment. Um, this week I've been listening to Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. So that's been fun. Last week it was Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage. Yeah. Um, I listen to too many podcasts to be on here talking all about of <laughs> all of them. But, so that'll be your what you can share with people. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I guess the one I just mentioned, uh, a book called I Can't Date Jesus by Michael Arsenu. I don't know how to say his last name. I'm sorry. I think it's Arsenal. I'm probably being microaggressive. But um, <laughs> um, I've also been listening to Hope Giselle. She mm-hmm. is an influencer. Uh, Adam Eli. I bought uh, his book, The New Queer Conscience. And I was reading that, which was rich. It was good. <laughs> seasoned, well seasoned. Yeah. Listen to my friend Rocio. Shout out. <laughs> Bota la sopa, the podcast, oh, <laughs> which I'm featured in. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> plug, so. shameless plug over here. <laughs> <laughs> but now the work she does is great. So, yeah. Mm, nice. Well, with that, I guess we should move on into our topic under review. Yeah. Let's go. So for this week's topic under review, we're going to discuss the role of race in social work, specifically in the United States. And for that, we have a very special guest. I'll let Darren go ahead and introduce him. Yeah, so Lance M. Wilson, you know, my friend and also licensed social worker. (laughs) I think we met a couple years back in Philly when we were volunteering for an organization. Um, But I want to throw it over to you to introduce yourself formally. Okay, well, my name is Lance Wilson. I am a licensed social worker in the state of Pennsylvania. I uh, also uh, hold my national certification in 
healthcare for social workers from the National, National Association of Social Workers. I primarily work with um, in the uh, outpatient neurology, where I primarily work with Parkinsonian uh, patients, Huntington's patients, essential tremor patients on an outpatient basis, but I also do a lot of trainings and talks as well as do inpatient discharge planning. So I do a little bit of everything. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for your intro. You do it all, you know. <laughs> Got all those credentials after your name. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to know a little bit about sort of your journey, um, just finding social work and different things. Um, so I remember we talked a little bit about what you studied in undergrad and how it informed and what you wanted to do. So I didn't know if you wanted to just tell us a little bit about that. Also, I guess, since you have these different degrees, it'd be really interesting if you told us what they allow you to do. Okay, sure. Um, so initially, when I went to undergrad, um, to Lincoln University, woo woo, <laughs> I initially went to go study uh, forensic biochemistry. I was supposed to be a oh, an okay. major. I was not supposed to be in social work by <laughs> Um, so I actually bumped into a few professors that were just like, you're in the wrong major. So what that turned into was me going into like human services, sociology, psychology, and from there, ultimately going to get my master's in social work, where my niche became medical. Uh, social, a lot of social workers have their like their niche in regards to what target population they work with. And I thought for me, versatility is key. So I decided to go after a degree that would allow me to go and help another population and still have an informed degree that would allow me to do such. Nice. And I think the versatility of a social work degree will allow you to do things that like a master's in counseling um, or a uh, psychological degree won't allow you to do. Gotcha. So I guess for a master's in counseling versus a master's in social work, what is like the distinction I'm just like asking because I'm like, I don't know. And I wonder if there's people who are also thinking about going to do one of these programs, trying to figure it out. <laughs> no. So it actually comes up a lot, like master's in human services, master's in counseling. The one thing I like about social work is that a counselor is that, a counselor. Okay. So I get my master's of science in counseling. I am supposed to be doing counseling. Uh, a social worker is supposed to, and make that very clear, supposed to <laughs> have enough training and background to be able to work with a diverse patient or not patient, client population. Sorry. Mm -hmm. okay. No worries. Medical, so patient is everything. Um, and a uh, client population that varies. So what that looks like is, is that for counseling, you're typically doing the, whatever your modality of therapy is that's going to look like you doing those interventions, that therapeutic intervention with that uh, client. And it's going to look very, um, very different as to opposed to a social work intervention. Uh, the easiest way when I'm teaching mm -hmm. um, or doing lectures is I tell people, look at, if you're looking at psychology or counseling, that talks about the mind and what the person can do within their mind to handle whatever stressor has come up. Okay. Social work takes it just a little bit further and says, I understand that you have certain things around you, institutional things, um, practical things, relational things that are all happening and they're going to affect you. And instead of me isolating you, how can you do better in this threshold? How can I also take into account of saying, you know, 
you have this going on, this going on, this going on, and they're all affecting you. And me as a social worker, my job is to alleviate mm -hmm. that pressure and help you uh, kind of navigate not only the mental health portion, if there's other structural systems, for example, for me, medical, so that means I have to be well-versed in mental health, uh, uh, insurance, uh, navigating the medical system through hospitalizations, whether it be a mental health specific one or a medical diagnosis one, uh, crisis response and follow-up care. So I'm dealing with people along the entire healthcare continuum and it wouldn't be appropriate for I'm just gonna say it, a master's in counseling to do that because they are someone that is helping people kind of pretty much cope. Okay, so that makes sense. So it seems like it's a bit of a distinction between sort of like an individual focused, maybe like practitioner, and then sort of someone who's working with like the social systems for that person mm -hmm. to support them. Okay. So you kind of already hit on, um, working with different populations. And we actually had a question specific to that. Uh, Darren, did you want to ask a question or? For social work, how does like the healthcare system help or hurt black people across age and population? So um, thinking about your smiling at this one, but thinking about <laughs> specifically children or people with disabilities, um, LGBTQ plus people or people with mental health concerns, you can choose like any of those or talk about any of it, but what is? For yeah, tell us what's tell us what's going on. <laughs> so, for the sake of you know intersectionality, um, let's compound some of those things because it's one thing to be LGBTQ or have a mental health condition or being a child in this system, but let's add on being black and trying to acquire some of the resources that are available to the typical mass population. And I think the primary thing is that when you don't have people that look like us in systems such as healthcare, many things will get misconstrued. I've learned that very quickly on, especially working with crisis in crisis, because at one point I was also working in the emergency room. Um, our crisis as black people, the way that we get our needs heard and navigating an institutional structure that is not made for us mm -hmm. is not going to be receptive to how we verbalize or how we manifest our needs. Mm. So to this one physician, this might seem like an irate Black woman who is just going off. We don't know what she needs. She might be, you know, high and... Sometimes it takes somebody that looks like us to just be in that space. It's not even that we had anything to do with their intervention, but being in that space to say, you know what, you also have a white coat, or I know that you might have some input into this system. I can't tell you how many times I've gone after people that were in healthcare and it was just like, I'm just glad that someone looks like me. And it was just like, look, this is, these are the needs that I have. My child is going through this. I, I'm late on my rent. I'm doing this. And it's just like, you have a lot of stressors. So how do we best help what your presenting issue is medically so that we can get you back to where you need to be? I just think when you were talking, um, I, you know, study code switching. So <laughs> um, 
I, was, I can do both. Yeah. <laughs> but I was thinking about just sort of like the breakdown in communication that you're describing that happens between many white, like uh, maybe healthcare providers and black sort of like patients. Um, and something I was thinking of was this term like crosstalk that I learned in my sociolinguistics course where one person could be talking about one thing in particular and it completely can go over the head of the other person because they don't understand that person's cultural references. So I think like something that I learned that I thought was like very useful in learning it is this like idea of like metapragmatic attack where, you know, in order to communicate with someone, you have to sort of be familiar with that person's contextualization cues and how they're framing questions and how they're understanding um, the world. And if you aren't able to access that or you don't have an understanding of that, it can it can cause these breakdowns in different communication styles. And oftentimes I think these things can happen across levels of like power and privilege. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up because I thought it might be relevant. Um, and also I love sociolinguistics, but, <laughs> but uh, I think it's, it's something that, you know, uh, something that I, you know, at least in my work, I'm interested in trying to solution. So maybe we could do a collab one day. <laughs> I'm down but, for yeah. a collab. But I didn't know what you were going to add, Jaslyn. <laughs> yeah. So as you were speaking, um, I work with families and a lot of the work I do is talking about adversity, environmental factors and experiences. And I have done extensive recruitment for different labs, mostly white labs that want these diverse populations. And seeing the approaches sometimes they take to going into these community spaces and events and the language, the attitude, all of that, and just the simply me being present, there's a familiarity, there's an understanding. Yeah. Um, and I, I automatically take a different approach because I've been to these like, these like farmers markets where you can go and take your your benefits too, and like I, I've just I'm so familiar with all of this, and there's no judgment, there's no anything, there's no outsider looking in. Um, same thing in the lab where these questionnaires and stuff are formulated by white people who don't have any context, and so you either put your input there, or then when you have certain families, you let them know that you understand how something might come off, but what you're comfortable with, you do that. I understand that. And we're not gonna we're not gonna cross any boundaries. Boundaries that again, a lot of these researchers just they have no no idea of. So they just cross them willy-nilly. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you, Lance, was like how do you sort of go about like bridging that gap in your work? So if you're working with like black patients who could be any number of these like intersecting identities, like what is your approach to sort of calling in patients or just I don't know if that's a proper terminology, but just like communicating and saying what needs to be said, you know, to get them the help that they need. So sometimes I think uh one of the things that I do, I do a lot of damage control. Okay. So and I'm not going to limit it to white practitioners. I'm going to actually just give it to anything that's non-black. Um, and even with that, some black individuals still do not miss the mark. Um, the first thing I do is damage control because nine times out of 10, you've encountered multiple individuals within the healthcare system that have not provided what you needed and so what I'm doing is now I'm coming in to do my full own assessment. My assessment is going to tell me what it is that I need to ask you and what it is that you need help repairing. And the one thing that I try to explain to people is that it's about the intervention. We're not going to solve your life issues that you've spent 15 years acquiring in this one consultation or this 15 minute phone call 
or me coming to see you for the next 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Takes time. Primarily what I'm doing is almost apologizing. Apologizing for the fact that you had to navigate independently um, a space where you didn't feel protected. And I'm glad that I can be here and make sure that you know, that we can have a dialogue that's more consistent with what it is that you need because you might articulate it in a way that this non-Black physician or maybe sometimes that Black physician that might not be down, quote unquote, might not, might have an issue with internalizing what it is that you need. Uh, So I do that full, that kind of full assessment and, you know, and I, I pride myself on being able to navigate both sides because sometimes you just want to hear someone that, and we're speaking now and we're able to articulate and, you know, because that's the formal education we've been through. And I have a friend and I believe her definition that formal education is just blinders. So the world is just too bright. And as black people get more formal education, they become sunglasses, they become shades that we can really see the real world for what it is and how to better navigate it. Um, but I do pride myself on being able to be like, I don't, I don't have to be formal all the time. If this patient is speaking to me in Ebonics, what's up, sis? What you need? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be this formal. And the way that I, the approach I take is that, yes, my non-white counterparts, or I'm sorry, my non-black counterparts might look frown upon. Like, why are you talking to Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so like that? And I'm just like, because they need a familiar face and they need someone that is able to communicate on their level. And at sometimes I have my own personal issue with, is this pandering or is it me wanting to make sure that you're, that you're able to verbalize what it is when you're in a, a, a sea of people who don't understand you? Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I, I really liked your sort of when we started when I asked you the question you started answering you talked about like you you're doing damage control and particularly doing damage mm-hmm. control for a lot of like non-black like practitioners and I like how I guess I asked you a question a little bit about like sort of like the individual but you kind of turned it back on the social because it's social worker <laughs> and critique sort of the people in the system who are upholding I guess the standards that were allowing for this sort of like misinformation or miscommunication to happen. Cause it, you're right. It isn't on the, the, the patients. Um, so I really like that point. Um, and I guess in addition to that as well, um, yeah, I think like, you know, I guess you brought up this idea of like speaking formally and stuff with patients. And then you talked about, you know, speaking of onyx or AVE. And I just wanted to say, I am so much for being like, what is this formal? You know, like, I think what we say is formal is oftentimes veiled white supremacy and whose dominating cultural norms are able to Mm. occupy a space and who's expected to shift to those norms. So I like the fact that you called that out. Um, And also, too, like, I don't know, I personally don't think it would be pandering, you know, (laughs) because you're Black. (laughs) So, you know, using Black vernacular is yours, Um, even though, like, as Black people, we speak multiple vernaculars. But, yeah, I just wanted to echo that back to you. And and very much, like, turning the the individual question, I guess, to social made me think about it differently. Um, But I think you had something to say, too, Jasmine. Yeah, so on the topic of damage control, you were talking about it in terms of, like, healthcare, but none of the social services or just like institutional bodies really operate 
on their own. So there's law enforcement, there's um, schools. So I know you also have to work with those. Again, this comes up in my research all the time. And so how do you do damage control in terms of, let's say uh, a police officer was called to a mental health situation, which again, why are we calling law enforcement for people who actually just need someone who's a medical professional to come and work with them? Or that situation, but it happens in a school. So now you also have an educational institution as well. Mm. Um, how do you sort of use your skills and knowledge in those sorts of settings where it's other social services, other public services kind of coming together to cause chaos in a particular person's life? Uh, so when there are other institutions that are kind of uh, plagued into the, the medical realm, I always try to at least set my clients or my patients at ease and letting them know, look, your health is my primary uh, goal and my primary objective. I want to get you to where you need to be within this healthcare system or get you linked to whatever you need, that whatever it is within this healthcare system to make sure that you thrive. Because if you're not healthy, you can't really operate in any of these other institutions. Mm. So, and I think that there's a, of course, a, a, a very giant mistrust of people of color in healthcare institutions. So I am now becoming this quote unquote face of this healthcare entity. And what that means is that if you already have had bias dealing with the school system on top of the police or the law enforcement institution, then now you come into another institution where you now have just taken on the brunt of, I'm just going to be discriminated against. I'm not going to be heard. I'm not going to be understood. No one's going to really, you know, get me. So it, it's really, I think it goes back to that damage control of, you know, having people realize that I'm here for you. I'm not going to operate in a way against mm-hmm. you. Um, because we, as we've seen, and, you know, I had to turn off some of these things, there's a lot of white womaning karening going on. <laughs> there's a lot of um, engagement with police enforcement or law enforcement that doesn't need to be had, one. So I think we as uh, Black people automatically just don't have a trusting narrative when it comes to institutions, understanding institutional racism and all those other types of things. But... Pretty much, I try and bring it to the now. What can we do now to alleviate this? I'm not going to be able to alleviate your past experiences or the fact that you were uh, having a mental health crisis and a police officer brought you in and mishandled you. I can't do, I, I can't personally in this moment fix that. Mm. We can rally, we can deal with Senate, we can do all of those things. But right now, your health care and any injuries you sustained and getting your mental health back on track are my objectives. And mm-hmm. sometimes that means getting the person to see within all these systems, right now we're focused on you. And everybody that is operating in the medical system should be focused on you. And if they're not, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So it sounds like you're really just like showing up for people, you know, who need to be shown up for <laughs> Um, and it sounds like something you brought up too is that health like is just like a very basic essential you know priority as you know many people have pointed out in this nation <laughs> like so just sort of um 
prioritizing it, saying like, this is something that you need as a fundamental, just like, right. And then like, maybe if you have access to like healthcare and you have access to this, then maybe in other institutions like schools or other places, like you'd be able to function, you know, properly, which makes a lot of sense. (laughs) And it also seemed like you brought up too, uh, something that I hadn't thought about as much, but kind of the inter effects of navigating different institutions all at once. So sort of if you might have issues in the school system that might involve law enforcement as another system, which might in turn cause harm, you know, and involve healthcare as another system. And I hadn't thought about like the interconnectedness between the ways that like people and particularly black people are moving through these different systems. So you, you gave me a lot to think about. <laughs> Just wanted to say that. Yeah. I, I think that's something that you, unless you've had a personal experience with that and or you work in a field or you do work that involves really processing people's experiences, you mm-hmm. like quickly see how interrelated everything is and connected and how all these bodies lean on each other to do the work that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so hearing about this, it's just, it's very interesting to hear this side of it because I, I don't go on this side of it. Yeah. I, I hear about it after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is very fascinating. Yeah. We did have, I guess, like a bit of a final question. I don't know if it's like a, a happy question. <laughs> but um, you'd written uh, an article that I read that you shared out on your Insta um, about coping during sort of COVID. And I, I think a lot of the work that you do, as far as I understand, deals with coping. You discuss these terms that I wanted you to explain because I, I learned them and I was like, these seem like very interesting terms. Um, but the terms are suboptimal and maladaptive coping strategies. Um, and I wanted to know if you could talk about a little bit of like what that means and like particularly in this moment, how we should think about these 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 things as we're all navigating and figuring out like this this COVID situation, Miss Rona. <laughs> I mean, so the reason, so I just want to start off by the fact that I use the terminology suboptimal coping or maladaptive coping is because we all cope. That's a basic human need. We have to cope with things that are stressors to us just mm-hmm. naturally. And one thing that I have personally noticed in my social work experience is that people are quick to call something unhealthy. The moment that you term something that as the as the negative or as the unhealthy, it doesn't create space for people to be in that space. Not all people start off coping in a healthy way. Sometimes you have to go through the negative or the quote unquote unhealthy coping to to get to that space where you can do more actively healthy coping. Um, So when I use suboptimal or maladaptive, I wanted to use those words because I wanted to show that these are actions that can do harm to you. Not because they're unhealthy, because ultimately if I say unhealthy, I'm completely uh, neglecting the fact that you needed something in that moment to survive. Mm -hmm. I say, that's unhealthy coping, but you just got 15 stressors. You found out um, a healthcare diagnosis. Someone in your family has died. You are dealing with stressors from work. You might have lost your job. If all of these things are compounding on you, who am I to tell you what is a healthy coping mechanism? What I can tell you is the coping strategies that are less likely to have a negative impact on your wherewithal as a person. 
But if I turn, and, and the term that I use was suboptimal. And when I say that, it's just saying, look, there's some negative things that can happen if you cope this way. I'm giving you, you know, a complete pass for coping this way, but I understand that people survive based off what they need at the time that they need it. Mm. So if I needed to take a few shots that day because it was a hard day, that may not be the most healthy, quote unquote, thing for you to do, but you survived. Coping, by definition, is about survival. Um, It basically translates for me to sort of deficit model approaches of development and how there's a lot of talk about what's atypical, what's typical, and what's kind of steering on the track of like what's normal. And anything that veers off of it is maladaptive in the sense of you're just never going to be on the right track. Um, But what people don't realize is what you're saying, like all these sorts of factors are going on all at once and they all take energy. They're very demanding. So you need to figure out how you're going to use your limited internal resources, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, all of that to cope and to survive. So in one sense, you might be doing all the physical things, right? But emotionally, you might have to make a sacrifice. And so then you're taking a hit there and you get all these repeated hits. And so if you don't think about it as being just suboptimal for maybe that moment or that situation, it becomes this thing where it perpetuates and someone just falls into the line of, oh, I just can't do anything right or I can't solve my problems correctly. And then all this work that you're doing, it's for naught because Mm -hmm. they just, they think that they are that all the time. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And and I think that like what you were bringing up, Lance, about the right now of it is something that, that Jazz and I feel like just spoke to where it's like, well, this person's here right now. <laughs> so what can we do? And with all of the trauma, the collective trauma that that's a lot of Black individuals right now, a lot of Black LGBTQ individuals right now are facing with like Pride Month and different things, I, I think like uh, assessing that person's position and what they're dealing with, I'd imagine I'm not a social worker, <laughs> but might be important in determining sort of what caused... Uh, or what sort of steps need to be implemented in order to help that person um, to heal. So I just had, I don't know, I guess just had a couple of thoughts on that, like thinking about like the lens through which people view people. So if you're like a black LGBTQ person showing up at like a doctor's office, like how are you being seen versus maybe sort of like a white sort of like straight man and like what might be behavior might be be pathologized in you without further investigation or like access to resources rather than behavior that might be treated with care and compassion, sort of like maybe in another person. Um, so not fully developed thoughts, but just you made me, made me think a little bit. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, is there anything else you kind of want to leave the people with, something from your work that you think might help them figure out life right now, especially with another big transition happening of reopening at first, we were all shut in and <laughs> supposed to be scared, but now we're supposed to be reopening. How do you make that jump? What sort of advice do you have? So um, for the reopening, uh, the one thing I want to point out is that all coping is almost synonymous with each other. So we have to survive being in the home, in the home uh, kind of being locked away due to COVID. That coping, those coping strategies would be no different if I applied them to recent publicity of police brutality and things like that. Um, And with reopening as a healthcare provider, one of the first things I tell people is you have to do what makes you feel safe. If you want to wear a mask until 
2027. Who am I to tell you that <laughs> you need to do? I think that people need to be uh, conscientious. And I think that people see numbers dropping and then they take that as, oh, it's free, it's free reign. Or people see other people acting in a way that I'm tired of being isolated. I am too. So let's all go to whatever state <laughs> that Florida, has, Florida. Uh, no, no names, no names, no names. <laughs> whatever place or whatever state yeah. that is allowing people to open up and just do whatever they want. And yeah. as a healthcare individual, and I think that you guys understand and appreciate statistics, the numbers will show you that things are not going in our favor. Yeah. So honestly, I try to tell people, do whatever it is that you can to protect yourself. Continue. I like social distance because I just don't like people up on me. <laughs> that. I'll be like, six feet, six feet. That's just going to be me. <laughs> I probably will be wearing a mask for quite some time. COVID-19 is a droplet precaution type of illness, which means that you just wearing a mask is not going to cover it. Um, if somebody sneezes, coughs, whatever, exert some type of droplet, mm-hmm. don't have a face mask on. You're, I mean, it can very easily still be absorbed through other uh, places in, in your body outside of your mouth and your nose. So I always tell people, look, you need to be educated about the monster that you're fighting because the moment that people get sick of it, which they are, um, they are going to act in a way that might not be in your best benefit. And the scary thing about COVID-19 is that there's a lot of people that are asymptomatic. So there's a lot of people that are out here carrying it and spreading it without realizing. Um, and as our wonderful um, president has uh, mentioned unto us, if uh, testing for it, you will stop getting the higher numbers. <laughs> no pandemic has ever been stopped that way. So my thought to the people is that be safe, do what you need to do, do what makes you feel comfortable. If you see a whole field of people with no mask on, but you wanna wear a mask, that is your prerogative and that is okay. And do what you have to do to keep the people, you yourself and the people around you safe. Healthcare is a very non-forgiving and unforgiving type of industry. It's driven by money. So you can stay out of it by all means. I'll help you navigate through it. But if you can stay out of it, please do. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's some very good advice. (laughs) Thank Um, you, Lance. You know, we y'all y'all got a public health advisory. too in addition to a race lesson um, y'all heard it here first at millennials unpublished um but just want to say thank you again for giving us your time and your energy um, and coming on here and sharing some experiences thank you guys for having me i'm so i feel i feel official like oh <laughs> i think everyone will enjoy that segment so i guess we'll wrap it up a final thank you to you lance and we'll move on over to our word on the street Come on. 
All right. So for this week's word on the street, we're going to go a little bit back in time and we're going to talk about <laughs> the situation with J. Cole and No Name. Not even necessarily the specifics of the event, but the concept of tone policing. Um, would you like me to share a definition out about tone Sure. Policing? Yes, right. please. I'm on my toe. So, <laughs> <laughs> I found this on the interwebs, and tone policing is described as dismissing a message which has been communicated when they are perceived to be delivered in an angry, frustrated, sad, fearful, or otherwise emotionally charged manner. Um, and the example they give is, for example, telling Black people that they're being quote-unquote negative when talking about racial inequalities and oppression, and specifically to the situation with No Name and J. Cole, and just for a lot of women in general, um, women are very often the... I guess, receivers of tone policing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) When what we're saying is corrective or it's combative to men in their opinion, we are often subjugated to tone policing. Uh, So I guess we can sort of talk about that. Yeah. It seems like a way to gaslight people, particularly women. Yeah. So like, instead of like listening to what the person's saying, um, you're able to just say, well, you're just angry. Well, you're just mad. Well, you just, which I think is like- So emotional. Right. And the definition it's a di- to dismiss. And I think that's literally what it does and it invalidates. So instead of like focusing on what the person actually said that was substantive, you know, like you're just gaslighting them because you don't want to deal with it. I think it happened oh, on like, um, I think you shared like a, a post or something. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk <laughs> about that. That's up to you. But <laughs> I mean, I had, I had thought about it. I was I left that on the day it happened. I left okay. it just there. But yes, I recently experienced a situation of tone police. I don't even want to just call it tone policing. It was also okay. like a paternalistic like tone policing is oftentimes partnered with paternalistic sort of tones coming from men as well so like if I am talking about something and a man doesn't like it it's possible that they might tone police my tone but they'll do it in a way that's paternalistic so they'll be like well listen here you should know that or well young lady young lady (laughs) little girl just all sorts of things I'm like I have one father I don't, and he doesn't talk to me like that. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where you get off talking to me this way when I didn't, I I didn't come at you with anything but facts. Yeah. Like, I think like, I'm bringing up like a slightly different issue, but I think a big issue of tone policing too is just like, I be on my sociolinguistics-ish as always. But I do think that people have different like cultural norms and like ways that they communicate themselves. So like, maybe you aren't understanding that person's tone because like it's 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 of a different framework. So for example, when I was in Spain, I thought that Spanish people were rude, you know. And I will flat mm-hmm. out say that, you know, get mad at me, be in my DMs. <laughs> I, I, I'm sad. I thought that at that time. Now I don't think that Spanish people are rude. <laughs> but part of it was just me not understanding the ways that that some things might be communicated. Like you could go to a cafe and you could just ask for a coffee, just be like coffee or, or give me a coffee. Like basically that's what it would translate. Dame. To. <laughs> yeah, or like pome pome coffee. Un cafecito, like my Spanish a little off. Bear with me, y'all. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, it's so curt. It's so rude. But then like, you know, in the States, we have different ways of ordering where we're like, mm-hmm. can I please have? Can you please give me? So if that's just a different way of doing something, it's really easy to write off someone 
uh, as being sort of like wrong or just saying that they did Absolutely. it in a way that's aggressive. Um, so it might not necessarily be completely mapping onto like their intonation um, mm-hmm. in particular, but I just wanted to bring that up as a way that you can dismiss someone on the basis of like how they're speaking rather than like what they're saying and what understanding their framework. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, that makes sense. <laughs> and that like kind of brought me to, cause you were talking about cultural ways of speaking. I don't know why, but it kicked it back to misogynoir for me where mm-hmm. it's, there's, stereotypes about how black women speak and how they're interpreted and should be perceived and so it really doesn't matter what tone you're actually using if everything you say is being filtered through this like (laughs) stereotype of you're angry you have an attitude and you're emasculating people you could say something in the right tone that people want to hear and it's still going to be received in that way so it's just a trap yeah, um, I even think that in our friendship, there's been times where, like, you've been like, I'm not disagreeing with you. And I'm just like, oh, true. <laughs> <laughs> you'll oh, say I do something. That. <laughs> and I, like, it doesn't happen that much. <laughs> but you'll say no, something, like, but what do you mean? And then you're like, but I just, I, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> I, I've learned to do that with men where, like, if I'm having a conversation and I recognize that they're not receiving what I'm saying, I'll explicitly point out that we're saying the same exact thing. <laughs> and, and sometimes I sit there and I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> not with you in particular no, but yeah, like yeah. sometimes when I talk to men I'm like I, ha- I think I have to be very explicit in letting you know that we're not disagreeing <laughs> you just can't receive what I'm saying to you so. <laughs> hey <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so tone policing don't do it <laughs> don't do it don't, don't do, it. do it just say no right um yeah I think that was this week's episode yeah Um, Thank you all for joining us again for another episode of Millennials Unpublished. Tune in each week as we all figure out life together. Yep. Please continue to rate, subscribe, write a review, share the podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, as always, please shout us out on Instagram at Millennials Unpublished. That's with two L's and two N's. I'm at Darren27. And I'm at Jaunty Jazz. Thank you again and tune in next week. Bye. Bye.